and welcome into the latest edition of The Sharpshooters. I'm David Schuster, along with my partner and friend, Mark Shanowski. And Mark, I'm still pretty geeked from that game last night. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. The Bulls are coming off a nice, exciting, way come from behind victory last night. 25 points down, and they rallied uh, to win last night's game over Detroit. And, you know, the Bulls, if nothing else, they're exciting. Even when they lose, they're pretty exciting. Hey, they're on a bit of a roll now. They won three of the last four. And it's amazing what uh, a second half of basketball can do to change your outlook about the team. Watching that first half, wow, that was so bad. They couldn't make throw it in the ocean. Uh, you know, they played poorly defensively. Jeremy Grant was lighting them up, which continued throughout the whole game. But, you know, I was thinking at halftime, this would just be a dreadful loss. I mean, you go into Indiana, you break a 10-game losing streak against the Pacers. You get a nice overtime win there. And then you come back and stink it up against the Pistons, who are one of the worst teams in the league. That would have been a horrible loss. And, of course, they've got to go to Philadelphia, Sacramento coming out Saturday. And then, you know, this league is so topsy-turvy this year with players in and out of the lineup because of health and safety protocols or injuries. And, you know, I, I wonder what the folks in Vegas are doing these days because it's so difficult to handicap these games because – Literally, you don't know if the game's going to go off, and then you don't know who's going to play. So these odds makers, I'm sure, are working overtime trying to figure out the best way to handicap these games. All right, so since we last did our podcast, um, they lost to the Clippers. The Clippers, obviously, a pretty good team. That goes without saying. Uh, Then they defeated Indiana and Detroit. They had the game against Charlotte canceled because of COVID. That's why they played the game against Detroit last night. Again, today is Thursday as we're recording this, and they have Philadelphia coming up. Then they have a very busy schedule. They have Houston, Sacramento, and Minnesota all, you know, either this weekend or, or next week. So the Bulls will be pretty busy here over the next week, but... You know, I, I'm with you, and I saw your tweets, obviously, in the, at halftime, and, you know, they were stinking it up at that point. But then, to be honest with you, in the third quarter, and it's probably the best defensive quarter they've played all season, they turned over the Pistons time after time, and the Pistons played right into it. They played some stupid basketball with a big lead in that third quarter, but the bottom line was the Bulls played some good defense, finally, in that third quarter last night. And kudos to Billy Donovan for not being afraid to shake up his lineup. He was very unhappy with the way some of his young starters were performing. They were able to cut the lead from 25 down to 18 at the end of the uh, second quarter. And he mentioned in his postgame comments that he decided to go with that same group because he thought they closed the second quarter well and were finally playing the defense the way he wanted it to. But when you saw that group take the court at the start of the third quarter, you had Thad Young at 6'7 or 6'8 playing center. You had Denzel Valentine and Garrett Temple at the forwards, and then you had Sato and Zach Levine in the backcourt. I mean, you talk about a small lineup. They could have got run out of the gym if Detroit was able to go inside and really try to attack the basket. But instead, it was the Pistons who kind of you know fell asleep and let the Bulls take control of the game. I don't think Detroit scored more than a bucket for the first six minutes of the third quarter. And it was a strange lineup. I was wondering, what is Billy doing? Obviously, I know that... He's a veteran coach, so he was trying to tell Kobe White and Patrick Williams and Wendell Carter Jr., hey, if you guys aren't going to defend, if you're not going to be ready to play, even though this game was not originally on the schedule and we're kind of on the fly, you're going to sit and you're going to watch. And also, to his credit, he brought him back in the fourth quarter. Patrick Williams was huge with 12 points in the fourth quarter. Wendell had a really good game with 18 points. And even though Kobe White shot the ball horribly, he made a key three-pointer late that helped him hang on the lead. 
Yeah, really interesting. Uh, specifically, the two youngest players, Patrick Williams and Kobe White, yanked you know to start the third quarter. But to his credit, like you just said, uh, Billy Donovan inserted them both back in in the second half, specifically down the stretch. And both Williams and Kobe White hit big three pointers. Uh, but really. Once again, Zach Levine, and we're going to highlight Zach Levine. Uh, he had just a huge game again yesterday. What he finished with? He finished with do 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 do. I got to find 37. my note. Thirty-seven points. Yeah. You know, over over his last half dozen games, Mark, he's averaging thirty-six points, seven rebounds, five assists. I mean, if he's not on the All Star team this year, and we'll talk more and more as we get closer to finally when they name that squad. Then, then there's something really wrong. I mean, he is an all-star player. I thought he was the last couple of years, but even more so this year. You know, David, up until the last few days, I was very pessimistic about Zach's chances to make the team just because we knew how this works. The coaches vote for the reserves. They always vote for players on winning teams. They always vote for established stars. They're very rarely going to vote in a guy who's putting up big numbers on a bad team. That's why Bradley Beal, who was one of the leading scorers, did not make the all-star team last year. It's why Zach Levine didn't make the all-star team a year ago. But now, based on the fact he scored 46 points in that very, you know, the game against Zion, that got a lot of national attention last week, and then carrying his team to a win over the Pistons last night. In the third quarter, he just put his head down. He went to the basket, possession after possession. He really should have got more foul calls than he did. He got in that little dust-up with Josh Jackson where he got raked across the neck, and he let Josh Jackson know in no uncertain terms he's not going to back down to anybody. When you look around the league, you know, you try to figure out who's going to make it, who's not. Honestly, the way the Celtics are playing right now, they've, they've sunk back to the 500 mark. They don't deserve two All-Stars. If I'm voting, I'm taking Zach Levine over Jalen Brown. Yeah, give him Tatum as an All-Star, but they don't deserve two All-Stars. So get rid of Jalen Brown. I take Zach Levine over Trey Young. The Hawks started out okay. They've sunk below the Bulls in the standings. And then really, you look at Ben Simmons. He's played very well lately, but he got off to a bit of a slow start. But since Philadelphia has the best record in the East and Doc Rivers will be the coach, I'm guessing that Philadelphia will get two All-Stars. But as we sit here today, I'm starting to be more optimistic that Zach will be on the team. So am I. And I'm going to throw something else into the equation here. You mentioned Doc Rivers. He's going to be the coach because they're going to have the best record, obviously, in the East. Um, and I, something tells me that Billy Donovan is going to make that phone call, if need be, to Doc Rivers. Doc, you know what? My guy does definitely deserve to be in that All-Star game. And and here's the power of having a very successful a coach right. who's got some name value to him. I mean, Jim Boylan picks up the phone. Doc Rivers goes, who is this? And he throws the phone down. Click. <laughs> but if Billy Donovan picks up that phone and calls Doc Rivers, not only does he listen, I think he heeds what the words that he's, he's being told by by Billy Donovan. So, yeah, I really do think he's going to get in it. You know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, uh, the Josh Jackson dust-up with Zach. And Zach, after the game, you know, was asked, well, you don't normally get angry Actually, right. he does get angry. I'm at courtside, <laughs> and I've seen him get angry yeah. plenty, but he usually doesn't get angry so much at the opposing players. I've seen him go off, go off against some referees in his own way, but last night, you know, it was it was almost like Xavier McDaniel and Michael Jordan face-to-face almost where they were going to potentially go at it, which they didn't. Anyway, here's Zach after the game saying, maybe, just maybe, that actually helped him out last night. I've been angry plenty of times. I think you just mean the, the camera caught me, you know, talking a little bit. Um, like going at players, though. You don't really, you don't generally. I mean, I, have I mean, I'm a real, I'm a real likable guy. You know, I don't go out there and talk a lot of mess to guys, but yeah, I'm not, I'm also not intimidated or scared of anybody. And that's just friendly rivalry, you know. 
guy talks to you, you don't talk back. I don't think, at least me personally, you know, I don't back down from anybody. The only person I'm scared of is God and my dad, so. <laughs> <laughs> you still scared of your pops? You're damn right. Uh, you're damn right. <laughs> Zach Levine's a competitor, Mark. I mean, I really like seeing that in him last night. We've talked about Zach so much over the course of the podcast that we've done, and you know, he's been polarizing with the fan base. And I think it's kind of a lazy narrative to say that Zach doesn't play defense or, or Zach doesn't affect winning. Listen, he's averaging 28 points a game in the NBA, one of the top scorers in the league. You can't discount that kind of contribution. But I thought that he really reinforced the message that Billy Donovan was sending by benching the three young guys, by going out in the third quarter, not settling for long jump shots, taking the ball to the basket. And I think the fact that he got in Josh Jackson's face also sent a message to some of his young teammates, I care. This is my seventh year in the league. I'm tired of being branded a loser. I'm tired of people saying I can't lead a team to the playoffs. You guys hop on my back, and I'm going to show you the way that we can win this thing. And I thought that from a leadership standpoint, that spoke volumes when he went got into Josh Jackson's face. Sure, Josh Jackson is a nobody. He was the fourth pick in the draft a few years ago, was in the G League last year. He's just trying to hang on to his NBA career. But I thought that – he sent a message to Billy Donovan that I want to be a leader of this group. And he also sent a message to his teammates. We're not going to put up with this nonsense about losing to a bad team at home. Now, the Bulls right now have a bad record at the United Center. There's no fans, of course, at this point. But that's something that's got to change if they want to be in contention for a playoff spot. They have to do better protecting their home court. Yeah, and Zach actually uh, caused a couple of those piston turnovers in that third quarter. He got into the passing lane one time specifically. He actually stole the ball. I can't remember who it was from. So, you know, he is he is improving on defense. And, and Thad Young, we're going to hear from Thad Young in just a second here, Mark, but Thad Young told Zach Levine when the season, even before the season started, I should say, look, if you want to be an all-star, you got to be a two-way player, which is pretty obvious. Um, and so anyway, I think he has upped his game all over the place. He, right now, he, he is averaging a career-high five assists uh, per game. And again, almost six and a half, seven rebounds a game as well. Anyway, here's Thad Young, who's talking about Zach Levine. Zach has been amazing this season. and He's done everything possible um, that he can as far as like going out there and you know scoring the basketball, um, passing the basketball, uh, getting in and getting rebounds, uh, playing as hard as he can each and every game. Uh, you know, we all know Zach is a, is a, is a really, a really great scorer in his league. Uh, but I think he's took a, a step up as far as like going out there and playing defense as well. Um, you know, I told him, you know, before the season, like if, if we're going to, you know, be able to do some things, you have to become, you know, a two way player. If you want to be an all star, you want to be a, be a two way player. And uh, he's transitioning to that, and he's done a, a very good job of, you know, leading us and doing the things that he needs to do. Um, so, I, yes, I definitely think he should be a starter in the game. Um, you know, not saying that, you know, there's other guys that, you know, shouldn't be that that shouldn't be starters in the game. You know, but uh, I think Zach has done um, the best out of all those guys. You know, as far as putting up numbers and, and showing that he can play with the best of them, and he, that he's a leader what he do, what he does for us. Um, he's he's been huge for us, so he definitely should be a starter in the game. And we're going to talk about Thad in just a second, also. But uh, uh, along with uh, Zach Levine, Thad Young, th- these are the two best players on this team at, at this juncture. And it's amazing the transformation Thad Young in year 14 of his NBA career last year. Bulls fans and many people in the media, including myself, were wondering why they bring this guy in. What did he sign for, like three years, $42 million? And you're thinking, 
He's given you nothing, but that's because he was used totally in, in a horrible way by Jim Boylan in terms of he thought he could turn Thad Young into a spot-up three-point shooter, you know, a catch-and-shoot guy, and that's not his game. His whole career was about operating in the low post, being able to score with his back to the basket, and also being an underrated passer. Now Billy Donovan comes in. He knows Thad Young's game very well from his years coaching with Oklahoma City, and he said, Hey, forget about what the previous coaching staff said. We're going to go back to the way you were used in Indiana and Brooklyn and some of your other spots. We're going to get you with your back to the basket. We're going to take advantage of your passing talents. And in year 14, Thad Young has been re-energized and reinvigorated. And I'm sure there are a number of contending teams that are calling AK on a daily basis saying, hey, what would it take for us to pry Thaddeus Young loose? Because he would be really valuable on a contending team. Heck, he's really valuable right now on the Bulls. Yeah, Arturis Karnishevis is going to have a decision on his hands come that trading deadline. I mean, a contender's going to give you a late first-round pick. Is that enough? I mean, right now the Bulls are a contender themselves. I think as we speak, Mark, they're ninth in, in the Eastern Conference, which right now is a playoff spot. So it's going to be really interesting. Anyway, we had Thad Young talk about Zach Levine. It's a mutual uh, you know, appraise society on the Bulls. Here's Zach Levine talking about Thad Young. And that has been, you know, the, for me personally, the MVP of the team. He's, you know, he, he does a little bit of everything. Um, you know, he, he could he could damn near average a triple double. Um, he, he makes up for our mistakes defensively. He guards some of the best big men each and every night. Even if he's undersized, he knows that plays tricks with him. Um, you know, he's just been great for us. And tonight, he he showed that. You know, in crucial plays, getting charges, you know, little rebounds, things like that. Being physical. Um, it's the type of guy you love to have on your team. I think these two guys like each other. <laughs> I think Zach was being a little bit modest, saying that Thad's the MVP. I mean, Zach Levine is the MVP with putting up career numbers in all the statistical categories. But when you talk about a guy who's accepted his role, who's done exceptionally well, and anything he's asked to do, that is Thaddeus Young. He's only 32 years old. I was looking up his bio the other day, and I was kind of surprised. This is his 14th year in the league. But he's been a valuable player just about everywhere he's been an underrated scorer, a guy who can who can put his head down, go to the basket and finish at the rim. And, you know, Billy Donovan, because Wendell Carter Jr. was out for a while and Daniel Gafford has really struggled, has said, Dad, you know what? I know you're 6'7", but I need you to play center. Sad goes, okay. You know, he'll, he'll put his nose in there, guard seven-footers, really play physical against those guys. And I think that his unselfishness, his passing with that second group has really – kind of gone over to the rest of the guys on the team that this is the right way to play if you want to win basketball games. Coaches always talk about ball movement, you know, moving the ball side to side, getting the defense moving, but it's all lip service if guys aren't willing to carry that out. And Thad Young is willing to execute exactly what Billy Donovan wants. And that second unit has been so much fun to watch the way the ball moves from side to side and they consistently get open shots. You know, much like you, I was very critical of Thad Young's play last season. But, yeah. you know, in retrospect, we'll just chalk it up to another bonehead uh, decision by Jim Boylan and how to use him or how not to use him. But you got to give a little credit also going back because it wasn't Karnishevis who brought in Thad Young. It was uh, um, John Paxson and the previous regime. And I remember at the time because they said they wanted to bring in a veteran presence and I think you and I were in agreement because at that point, Taj Gibson was a free agent as well. And we thought, well, the familiarity with the Bulls organization and there's nobody better in, in the locker room than a Taj Gibson. You know, although 
you know, the same things that make Taj Gibson a great teammate are the same reasons that Thad Young is a great teammate. But looking back on it, that was the right decision because Thad Young has more of a game overall than Taj Gibson does. Plus, he's got the leadership in the locker room. So that was a good move on the part of uh, John Paxson. Well, going back to that free agent summer of 2019, you know, the Bulls didn't have max cap space, but they had a pretty good chunk of money that they could spend. My hope was that they were going to find a way to steal Malcolm Brogdon away from the Bucks, And unfortunately, he got a little bit out of the Bulls' price range. It wound up being a sign-and-trade deal where Milwaukee got a first-round pick. And I think Brogdon got an average of about $20 million annually, you know, something like a four-year, $80 million contract, which was a little too rich for the Bulls' blood. Uh, Milwaukee really misses Brogdon, by the way. I mean, this guy has emerged as a, as a potential all-star as well. But in terms of their utilization of cap space, at that time, I was more excited about Sato than I was about Thad Young. I mean, I knew Thad Young was a solid veteran, but they had Lowry Markin as their starting power forward. And I'm thinking, well, Thad Young, 15, 20 minutes a game, he'll fill a role. I was more excited about Sato. And, you know, Sato, it's been kind of a mixed bag. Last year, he came on strong. Later in the season, I thought he played his best basketball. This year, of course, uh, he started late because of the COVID uh, protocols. And, and I thought that Sato was going to be a really good fit with the team last year, and it didn't really work out as well as, as we had hoped. But then again, you have to go back to the coaching staff. I think he's giving them good minutes off the bench. Uh, he helps out on the nights where, where Kobe is just a little bit overwhelmed, and I think he's been a good veteran presence. He also could be a guy to some contending team, maybe a Golden State that has kind of a weak bench might try to pick him up to ease the load on Steph Curry a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting uh, come the trading deadline. We'll hear from Billy Donovan talk about that in just a second. But, I mean, we mentioned Thad Young, and there's Thomas Adaransky. There's even Garrett Temple, you know, who's a potential. These are all the veteran players who have led that second unit to the success that it's had. Any one of those three could be, and I'm sure there will be discussions from other teams in regards to all three of those players. But, again, if the Bulls are – you know, with a chance to get into the playoffs. I mean, Arturis Karnischewicz has got some decision-making. Does he try and get something uh, as an asset going forward, or does he try and get this team, which is pretty important for a young team to get into the postseason and get that experience? It's going to be a really interesting question, Mark. Well, with a new front office and a new coaching staff and the marching orders he was given by the Reinsdorfs, which he said in his introductory press conference was, I was brought into effect change. I think what that means is he is not beholden to anybody on this roster. Obviously, Patrick Williams is a keeper. He'll be a foundation piece, a guy that they'll build around. My hope is that they find a way to extend Zach Levine, keep him as part of the long-term project. But honestly, after that, I don't know if anybody is guaranteed a spot on this roster next year and beyond. I think that if you have an opportunity to trade Thad Young or Sato and get some, you know, a decent draft asset, you know, if you trade Thad Young, let's say you trade him to Boston, you get the 22nd pick in the draft, and then you combine that pick with wherever you wind up, say you're a late lottery team or you're picking 15, maybe you can combine those two picks and move into the top 10 because this is a strong draft. I think that a draft asset could be really valuable, and I don't think that either Thaddeus Young or Tomas Sadoransky is going to be around when this team is hoping to do some things in the Eastern Conference. If they can cash these guys in for a first-round pick, or in the case of Sato, maybe an early second, I will go ahead and do it. All right, let's talk about Patrick Williams for a second. He came up really big, obviously, in, in the tail end of the game. That Not only that three-pointer, but he had a dozen points, I think, in that fourth quarter. Until that point, he was invisible. And the last few games, even before that, he has shied away from things that I think he can do on the court. 
What do you make of his game at this juncture? We're, what are we, about uh, almost 30 games into this NBA season? He's never probably played this many games ever in his life, you know, at this juncture of a season. What do you make? You know, he, he's definitely talented. And, you know, your buddy Stacey King loves him as well he yes, should he because his ceiling is so high, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, he, I think he still needs to be a little bit more bold on the court and take advantage of the skills that he has. That's why it was so encouraging to see him get aggressive on the offensive end in that fourth quarter. He scored 12 points against the Pistons. There was one sequence where he grabbed an offensive rebound on a missed corner three, and instead of just trying to go back up with something soft, he went up and power dunked it. And, and I was so glad to see that. Later, he went strong with the basket, got an and one. And then late in the game, after Kobe White hit a three to stretch the lead to four, the Pistons came back and scored, and it was Patrick Williams with a good ball movement hit a corner three. All those things are encouraging. You know, he has so much potential with that body, 6'8", 225, the big hands that they were talking about yesterday on the broadcast. I think that he could be a really good offensive player. It's just that at 19 years old, being the youngest American-born player in the NBA, he's just deferring to guys that he feels like, it's not my place to be the, the go-to scorer on this team. I think as he gets more comfortable within the Billy Donovan's offensive system, I think we'll see him be more aggressive on the offensive end. And when you project him two and three years down the road, they could really have something special because this kid has all the physical attributes that you want in an NBA forward. Is he a three? Is he a four? I don't know if it really matters in today's NBA. He's a, a really strong forward who can score inside and outside, who can defend multiple positions. And that's exactly what most GMs are looking for right now. Yeah, I think ultimately Billy Donovan or maybe one of the assistant coaches like Maurice Cheeks, they need to get more in his ear and say, look, son, you don't need to defer. I know that's part of your personality, and you even did that in your one year at Florida State. But you know what? You are an NBA talent, and you're as good as almost anybody on this roster. You need to be a little bit more bold out there. And I think in due time, you're going to see that more on a consistent basis. Let's talk about Wendell Carter now for, for a couple of seconds. He had the injury. Um, I thought he was going to be out longer than what he was. He came back, and, and Mark, he basically, in, in limited minutes so far, they're still working him in. He's basically put up double-doubles in his first couple of games back. He's been very good, and surprisingly so. You know, at times, Wendell can be passive as well on the offensive end. But in his first game back against Indiana, he scored two baskets right away, and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. I know we're going to hear from Wendell about the treatment that he received that gave him some relief from that thigh contusion, but it's been pretty remarkable. He had one full contact practice. He came back, played well against the Pacers. And as I mentioned, he had a good scoring game in the win over, the, over Detroit. So, yeah, I think that's the kind of performance that Bulls fans have been looking for from Wendell. He came out of Duke as a guy that was labeled as, a, as someone who had a high upside in terms of, of being an Al Horford type player, a guy who could step out from 18 to 20 feet and knock down jumpers. To this point, we haven't seen that part of his game, but I'll tell you what, I'm liking what I've seen from him in these first two games back. Oh, I said it back during these uh, exhibition season. I don't want him shooting threes. I'm sorry. Some big guys can shoot him. Some can't. I don't think he can. Um, and he's going to have a real test in the Bulls' next game, which is tomorrow night as we record this again on Thursday. Joel Embiid, to me, is the best center in basketball. And right now he might be the MVP of the league. You know, Time will tell on that one. You know, and when Wendell has gone up against bigger centers, he seems to have, you know, like a lot of players do, problems. So that'll be really interesting. You mentioned uh, him talking about uh, the, uh, uh, the the stuff that helped him get back quickly. 
stuff that you and I, Mark, don't have the luxury of having happen to <laughs> us. Anyway, here's Wendell Carter talking about some of the treatments he did and why he came back as quick as he did. So um, I got a PRP shot, uh, which I think they, they take blood from somewhere else and put it into the effect, uh, the hurt, the injured area. And um, now I got instant relief from that. Um, you know, it just sped up the process for me. So, and I also was just, you know, just thirsty to come back, you know, and then, you know, uh, smartly, of course, but the body was feeling well, the body was feeling good. So I was like, you know, let's, let's get back to it. Let's not wait. Again, the best I can ever hope for in my medicine cabinet is like a Band-Aid. Well, I remember way back when, you know, probably going back 10 years now, that uh, Kobe Bryant went to Germany to get right. that injection, what they call right. the PRP, the platelet-rich uh, plasma, platelet-rich plasma. And, you know, Kobe said that it gave him a lot of relief from the injuries that he was experiencing. And people were thinking, what kind of uh, voodoo medicine is this? But it worked out well for Kobe, and I think – he passed that word along to a lot of NBA players along the way, and now it's a, a standard kind of treatment. Remember, it used to be, especially in baseball, we heard about pitchers getting their shoulders injected with cortisone to try to give them some relief, but really that was more of a numbing agent than anything else. And unfortunately, I think a lot of pitchers wrecked their arms thinking that they're, they were feeling better than they were. But this particular treatment obviously has proven to be safe. It's given athletes a lot of relief from, from those type of muscular injuries. And I'm glad it's worked for Wendell because uh, he's looked good in these first two games. Absolutely. All right. We, we talked about uh, Billy Donovan and the trading deadline. And I guess it's only normal, Mark, in all sports. And you and I have been around for a long time. As you get closer and closer to a trading deadline, especially with younger players, um, and, and the word goes around that your name might be involved and his name might be involved. Anyway, here's Billy Donovan talking about if any of the players have come to him at this juncture, and if they have or if they will, what does he say to them about the potential trading deadline? I have not had any players come to me and talk to me about that. Um, I, I do think that even though we've got a lot of young guys on this team, um, I think having veteran guys, if, if those guys do communicate with him, and I'm not saying they have or have not, I don't know that, but it's just kind of part of the business when things get thrown out there. And it's just part of, you know, it's, there's got to be a level of, uh, you know, understanding that there's certain things you can and cannot control and what they can control is playing. So, I mean, I have not had any conversations. The player has not come to me to discuss that, whether it be, Hey, I heard this or I'm worried or what are you hearing? There's been nothing like that. They have been, you know, really, really engaged. I think this is always to be honest with you every year. It's a hard time. One is you got the all-star breaks around the corner. You got free agency coming up. You know, the biggest challenge I think for myself and the staff coaching wise is, can we keep these guys really engaged to compete and play? Because even if there is stuff out there that may or may not be true, and I have no idea, I have not talked to Arturis in any detail about any of that stuff, and he has not come to me and said, hey, listen, something's close to happening. So it's all been focused on helping these guys, helping the team, and trying to help these guys get better you know, in some of their roles. And that's kind of where we've put the focus. And as we alluded, Mark, it'll be really interesting to see what the Bulls do. Um, and, and obviously, Billy Donovan, who's going to be a partner with Arturis Karnisha, for years to come, he's going to have a lot of decision making, uh, you know, handed over to him as well. And it's really a tough spot the Bulls are in. Obviously, you know, you're going to tell your fan base our goal is to make the playoffs, especially with the fact that they've added this new play in element where 10 out of 15 teams in each conference will actually be a part of the postseason. But when you really look at the big picture, I wouldn't be surprised if Arturis and, and Mark Eversley and Billy Donovan, when they have their powwow sessions, are saying, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to go in the lottery again this year. Uh, it's a great draft class. It goes deep, you know, maybe 10, 12, 14 players deep. 
we wouldn't mind grabbing another elite talent this year to add to our mix. They're going to tell the fan base and the media that our goal is to make the playoffs. And when you look at the fact right now, you've got New York in sixth place with Tom Thibodeau. That's no juggernaut by any means. You know, you've got Charlotte that's in the playoff discussion. Uh, Atlanta's still in the mix. The Bulls are definitely on par with those teams. You know, I'm certain that Miami's going to come back right now. They're out of that playoff picture. But as they start getting players back from injuries and the health and safety protocols, I'm quite confident Miami will be a playoff team. Whether or not the Bulls make it, you know, I, I don't think that's the most important thing right now. The most important thing is identifying which players you want to keep going forward and which ones you can move along. And that's why I think that when we get closer to March 25th, you're going to see the Bulls name being mentioned in a lot of trade rumors. All right. Speaking of, once again of the trading deadline, and it's pretty interesting and, and, and maybe even controversial that a couple of key players on their teams are now being sat down to avoid injury. And I'm talking specifically about Andre Drummond with Cleveland and Blake Griffin with Detroit and those organizations. And listen, it's their organization. They can do what they want are sitting those players down to make sure that they don't get any further injured uh, and, and, and to gauge what kind of trading interest there is around the league. You know, some players around the league are upset. Draymond Green took some pot shots against uh, the uh, uh, Cavaliers organization. What, what are your thoughts on the subject? Well, it's, it is a touchy issue. You know, you look at the fact that NBA players can be fined if they go public with a trade demand. And yet here are two organizations saying that we're going to sit a starting caliber player because we're looking to move him. It is quite the double standard. And I'm not the huge I'm not a huge Draymond Green fan, but I thought, you know, he pretty was pretty eloquent in describing the double standard that exists. The fact that a player can be fined by being unhappy with his current situation. But if a team decides it's better for our organization to trade a starting player, they can go ahead and sit him for days or weeks at a time and no one says anything about it. So I thought there was a lot of merit to his comments, even though, you know, in Draymond's way, he always kind of overstates things. But you look at those two players in particular, the circumstances with Andre Drummond, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. He's always been the kind of guy that, that puts up numbers, but really hasn't been a, a guy who affects winning. And unfortunately for Blake Griffin, his knees are shot. He's just not the same player anymore. Detroit's going to have a devil of a time trying to get anybody to take on that contract, which has a couple more years to go. I would, I would expect that we're going to see Blake Griffin eventually wind up in the buyout market. And, and I'm hearing that the Lakers might want to bring him in, which would uh, be, you know, I think that all of a sudden you'll see Blake Griffin and miraculously feel a whole lot better if he gets, winds up on a contending team like the Lakers. All right, a couple other things around the league before we get to our uh, way back segment uh, that we have our walk down memory lane. The Utah Jazz right now continue to have the best record, not only in the West, but I think in all of the NBA. Yeah. And they just keep winning. Um, I don't really feel like they're going to win an NBA title this year, but you got to give them credit. They're, they're playing winning basketball. And like we talked about one of our previous podcasts, you know, they easily could have broken up. Um, you know, the center and, and star guard guys from their team because they had a beef at the end of last season after the COVID situation, but they didn't. Rudy Gobert and, of course, Donovan Mitchell. Um, to, the, to that uh, organization's credit, they kept them together. They're winning basketball games, and they're beating good teams on top of it. Yeah, I have to say, I never thought Rudy Gobert was going to be this good. You know, he came out of France as a shot blocker. You know, the stifle tower, they were calling him because he could block shots the way he could. But he had no offensive game, zero. 
And as he's evolved as an NBA player, and credit to Quinn Snyder and their coaching staff for sticking with him and developing him, you know, he's not going to step out and, and hit three-point shots or anything, but he can score with his back to the basket. He's so strong. He's difficult to move when he gets position in the low post. And he's putting up 20-20 games now. I mean, he's, he's, he's had a remarkable season. He'll certainly be an all-star again this year. Donovan Mitchell has taken a step forward in his career. He can be a bit erratic at times where he has some poor shooting performances, but he's been more consistent this year. And the guy who's really been underrated is Jordan Clarkson, who was probably the favorite for sixth man of the year. He had a 40-point game earlier this week, and you know he, he was with the Lakers, and he was traded to Cleveland, and he was traded to Utah, and people were like, well, who is this guy? He has been a big factor in them running off this incredible streak where they've won like 20 out of 21 games. I think when you get in a playoff series, I don't know if they can beat the Lakers. I'm not sure they can beat the Clippers. But for a regular season team, they have been very impressive. And I think they're going to be a team that if they do meet the Lakers in a a seven-game series coming up this spring, it's going to be interesting to watch. And, Mark, speaking of Donovan Mitchell, and we're going back on a a week or two, you saw the clip with uh, Shaquille O'Neal ripping him after, after, not only after a game, but after a game that the Jazz won, saying that I mean, I just don't understand that. Um, and, and maybe, you know, just being part of that TNT broadcast, because Charles Barkley does that with a lot of players, too. And you saw what happened when uh, he had Kevin Durant on after a game also. But what, what Shaq did with Donovan Mitchell, I mean, Donovan Mitchell's been fantastic in his early part of his NBA career. I didn't understand it then, and I still don't. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, after being part of broadcasts like that for so many years, if one of the producers or maybe an executive at Turner told him to be a little bit edgier on the show, especially in these interview situations. I find it hard to believe that guys who are accomplished as Shaq and Charles Barkley feel like they have to show how tough they are by trying to, you know, basically embarrass guys on national TV in these post-game interviews. Both uh, Donovan Mitchell and Kevin Durant, well, Durant was a little bit surly, but Mitchell handled it about as well as he could. You know, they would have been justified to take that headset off and just throw it on the ground. I mean, you know, Shaq basically saying you're not a winning player. You really haven't. You can't carry a team anywhere in the playoffs. I thought that was horrible. And I I would hope it's not Turner trying to to re-energize the show, because I'll be honest, I used to love inside the NBA. And I think it's dropped off a little bit in the last few years because they constantly say how bad the league is. The worst thing you can do is downgrade your product when you're coming on after nationally televised games and saying, well, it's not as good as when I played. Nobody wants to hear that. You know, you, you can make your critiques and, you know, a lot of them are valid, but for these guys just to say that, you know, get off my lawn and, you know, it's not, not as good as when I played. I, I just think it's, I think it's bad television and I hope it's not someone at Turner trying to tell them to get tough with these guys. Well, that would be really, in my opinion, asinine if someone at the TV network, which is uh, uh, paying the league, um, and then the league would say, well, like, what the heck are you doing? Why are you criticizing our players? That yeah. makes no sense. Uh, I don't know. The whole thing, just it's a turnoff to me because Donovan Mitchell is not a player who's not a winner. He has been a winner. He hasn't won a title, but he's only been in the league a couple of years. So that really made no sense to me. Uh, what are your thoughts on the all-star game? I guess it's going to go ahead. It's going to be a one-day affair uh, in Atlanta. They're going to have all these skills competition, the slam dunk, the three-point contest, as well as the game itself all in one day. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm really sort of ambivalent to the whole thing. What are, you, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I think it's more trouble than it's worth. Obviously, we've seen the figures that going back to Turner again, they can make like $30 million with the uh, with the TV rights to this game. So, you know, it's all about money and trying to cash in on the biggest stars in the game. And the All-Star game and the NBA Finals are probably the most popular events for NBA fans. And they didn't want to bypass it. You know, I guess they figured they're going to go to the trouble of naming the teams. They might as well try to get them all to Atlanta for a, you know, a 36-hour period, fly them in, do the event, and get them back out. You know, the mayor of Atlanta has been very outspoken in saying there's not going to be any fans at these events. This is a made-for-television event. We're going to try to get them in on Saturday night, uh, keep them in their hotel rooms, have them bust over to the arena to do the event and get them out, get them out to the airport. So it's, it's really unfortunate for the players that they get this short five-day break between halves of the season – which is basically eliminated by having to go to Atlanta and participate in this activity. You know, I, I know that some fans are like, well, they're getting paid all this money, but they're also exposing themselves to the risk that we all are in this COVID environment. And now you're bringing all these people in from different organizations. If somebody would come in who's positive for the virus and God forbid would infect a number of people at the event, that would just be a horrible thing when you consider you have got all the biggest stars in the league in one place. But Let's hope the event goes off as smoothly as it can. Let's hope Zach Levine gets to experience his first taste of All-Star Day, not All-Star Weekend. And let's hope they can all get back to their team safely. Mark, did you see this tidbit? I saw it yesterday. They're talking about what players in the league get the most positive tweets, what players in the league get the most negative tweets sent at them by the fan base. Did you see this one? I didn't see that, no. Okay, so I'm going to give you some of the names. It's pretty interesting. Um, if you had to guess what players in the league get the most negative tweets, and this is from fan base, who would you think would be you know, the top three or four players? Well, certainly Draymond Green, I think, would have to be on that list because he's just about outspoken on everything. I would guess Kevin Durant probably because he's kind of turned into a villain later in his career as he's gone from Oklahoma City to Golden State to Brooklyn. Uh, James Harden because of the way he forced his way out of Houston with uh, basically quitting on his team early in the season. I'm trying to think uh, who else might be near the top of that. Um, those are the ones that, that immediately jumped to mind as guys. Maybe Joel Embiid, he's been kind of a polarizing figure as well. Well, you had one of them, and that was Joel Embiid. He's number three on the list. And I'm sure all those other guys do get a lot of negative ones, and they're probably in the top ten. But I just wrote down the top four. The number one guy, and it's surprising to me, the number one guy with negative tweets sent at him is Steph Curry. Wow. And I think I think that's more of a jealousy kind of thing. And that's what I'm guessing, because I can't figure that out. And it's really funny, Mark, because they had the most the players that get the most negative and positive, and Steph was number one on both lists. He gets yeah, the I mean, most how can, how can you not like Steph Curry? Here's a guy that doesn't look like an NBA player, you know, a, a shorter, skinny guy. He kind of runs around the court like a like a deer. You know, he's he's just overachieved to such a remarkable degree. Two-time MVP. This year coming back from serious injuries, averaging 30 points a game and carrying a Golden State roster that really is, is pretty bad without Klay Thompson this year into a playoff position. Um, you know, he's been good off the court, you know, good, solid citizen. Yeah, that one surprises me a lot. I can only think it's a jealousy thing. So the, the ones that, again, Steph is number one, both negative and positive, which is really interesting. Number two negative is Russell Westbrook. And yeah, Russell Westbrook, sense. he's a lightning rod. Uh, Joel Embiid is number three. And LeBron, I'm sure because of all the times that he's 
complaining to the referees and everything. He's also pretty high on that list. All right, one more thing before we go down our memory uh, lane segment. What do you make of the Brooklyn Nets? I mean, their record is still semi-mediocre. They've had a lot of injuries, and Durant's going to miss a couple of more games. And, and Kyrie Irving, you know, had his problems earlier in the season. Harden, to his credit, has been a fairly pretty good overall team player. He's, you know, obviously leading the team already in assist. But their, their, their record is fairly, you know, pedestrian. However, against the other top teams in the league, Mark, they're 10-1. and one. So something tells me they're ultimately still going to come out of the East if they're all healthy when the time is uh, necessary for them to be healthy. You know, I haven't been the biggest James Harden fan. I didn't really like the way he played in Houston, you know, dominating the ball and always seeming to point the finger when they wouldn't succeed in the postseason and really kind of disappearing in big games. I had a chance a couple of years to knock off Golden State, and it was Harden who kind of disappeared in the most important games of the season. So, you know, in saying that, I I gave him all the credit in the world for coming into this very combustible Brooklyn situation and really saying, I'll take less shots. I'll be the point guard. I will pass the ball to Kyrie. I'll get the ball to Kevin Durant. I'll get the ball to the supporting players. I'll lead the league in assists, and I'll take less shots because one of those three had to step forward and, and do it. It wasn't going to be Kevin Durant, who didn't really should take a step back. He's, he's one of the two or three best players in the league. But Kyrie Irving, you see the comments the other day where he goes, yeah, I had a conversation with James, and I told him, you're the point guard, and I'm the shooting guard. Can you imagine – you know, if you're playing on a team and some guy comes up to you and says, your job is to pass the ball and don't shoot it because I'm the guy who's going to shoot it. So, you know, that that is a combustible mix. It could fall apart at any point in the season. But as we've talked about so many times, talent wins in the NBA. They have the most talent in the Eastern Conference. And unless some team is able to make an addition before the trade deadline, I would guess that in a best of seven series, it's going to be tough to outscore those three guys four times out of seven. Yeah, I got a feeling they, they still come out of the East unless they have like a bunch of flight uh, fights rather in, in the locker room one day. And that's uh, easily possible as well. All right, time for our walk down memory lane segment. I'll lead it off this week. This is where we talk about over many of our years that we, you and I have both been covering the Bulls. Something popped up, whether on the court, off the court, what have you. And so I'll, I'll lead it off today. And Scott Skiles... <laughs> Scott Skiles was fun to be around. Um, the first thing I think about when Scott Skiles was that one time when he had the one word answer, when the question was posed to him, what could Eddie Curry do to improve rebounding, his rebounding? <laughs> and his one word answer was jump because Eddie Curry never right. did jump. So, I mean, he was always funny. But specifically what I'm talking about here he was an interesting person. I mean, he was a stubborn person. He also could be standoffish at times, at least with upper management types. But I think with the media overall, he was pretty decent. Um, At least I thought he was. And he was also gregarious this one time because besides just being so, you know, uh, entwined with basketball, he was very successful as a day trader. And what I mean by that is, as a stock uh, trader, you know, he sat at home, he studied it very uh, closely, and he was very good at doing that. And he made a lot of extra money besides the inflated salary that he got from all these teams, you know, and he got incredible buyouts on almost every franchise he was ever with. 
but he was very good at doing that. He also had an incredibly hot wife, but that's another story. Um, anyway, so I knew he was very good at doing that. My son at the time, and we're going back 15 plus years now, my son was a junior in high school who was, was in the finance club. Uh, and my son has gone on to be very successful in the world of finance. But I brought him to practice one day and I asked Scott Skiles, hey, would you sit down and just for a couple minutes, talk to my son about the world of finance and your thoughts on the whole subject. He took my son to the side into the corner after practice at the Birdo Center, and he sat with him for about an hour's time. I was freaked out wow. by it. I really was. And, you know, th then he came up to me afterwards and, you know, it was a great education for my son because Scott Skiles was really a cerebral kind of guy. I mean, he was, he was a lot of things, but he, he's pretty cerebral. And anyway, that was something that I'll never forget and always appreciate that he took the time, an hour's time, literally, to sit down with my son in the corner and just talk about whatever they ended up talking about. So that was something that has always uh, stuck in my mind over all these years. That's really impressive. And, you know, Scott Skiles, I don't know what he, what, how good he was in terms of trading uh, secu securities and stocks and stuff, but he was an expert at walking away from contracts with years left on him and getting all his money. He did it what, in Indiana and in Phoenix, Milwaukee, Chicago, everywhere he was, he, he would say, you know what? I can't coach these guys anymore. He'd walk away with a year or two left on his contract. And I think in almost every situation, he got all his money. That's pretty yeah, good work. And it's interesting because John Paxson told me about that in advance. And, and Paxson, you know, when he went to recruit him, he fell in love with Scott Skiles and he loved him for all of about two weeks. And then he hated him, to be honest with you. Right, but right. I will not allow him to do what he did in Phoenix and all those other places here in Chicago. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened here also. So you're right. He was a mastermind of getting all his money without actually putting in the work. God bless him. Yeah, I don't know what Scott's doing now, but I'm sure he's very wealthy and uh, very well taken care of. So kudos to Scott Skiles for being able to work the system. My story is baseball related since pitchers and catchers reported for spring training in Arizona this week. You know, I'm going to tell a story about Michael Jordan's attempt to play baseball. And that was a media circus to end all media circuses. Were you down there much, Shu? You know, I, when he first had batting practice at the, at the ballpark on the right. south side, that was a zoo also. So I went to that. But no, I never went down to where he was playing down in uh, wherever it was. Sarasota, the, yeah. Yeah, I was working at Channel 7 at the time, and at that time, the White Sox, who are now in Arizona, were training in Sarasota, Florida. And every national media outlet was out was down there following every step that Michael Jordan took. And, you know, we are very familiar with covering the basketball superstar, but it was the same kind of thing at this fledgling 30-something guy trying to show that he could play Major League Baseball. And I'll never forget the days that I was down there and the circus, people, cameramen tripping over each other, trying to get shots of Michael playing catch and Michael in the cage and Michael running the bases. And, you know, we, the great thing about spring training, especially early before the game started, was you could pretty much go wherever you wanted. So there were camera crews, you know, following them wherever they went. And Frank Thomas tried to take MJ under his wing, and he was trying to fire him up, you know, because baseball is a really tough game, especially when you're trying to pick it up after not playing for a decade plus like Michael was. And he would give Michael these pep talks, you know, before they would go run, run in the outfield. He'd go, you were the greatest basketball player. You use that same mentality in baseball. There's nobody that could stop you from being great. And I'm thinking, who is he kidding? You know, here's a 37-year-old guy that's going to try to hit major league pitching and try to, try to be a major league baseball player. 
you know, Frank and, and, and MJ became pretty good friends and, and Frank tried to help him out the best he could, but let's face it, Michael could do anything on the, on the basketball court, but he was overmatched trying to hit a curveball and trying to do some of the things that you had to do. You know, I'll give him credit. He stuck with it. He went down to Birmingham. He played a full season. He bought, you know, a luxury bus for the guys to travel in. He hit 200, which doesn't sound like much, but for a guy who never played any professional baseball, and you look at his stats, he stole 30 bases, which shows, you know, how athletic he was. But going back to Sarasota, the thing that was great about MJ before his first retirement was he was always at his locker before games and he was easy to talk to. And I remember the day this happened when I was down there covering the team, the Bulls made a trade. They traded Stacy King, my good friend, to Minnesota for Luke Longley. And so I just went up to MJ and for some reason, there was nobody around at the time, and we just talked about the trade and what kind of impact it would have on the Bulls. And I could tell right then, this was like in February of 1994, he was still keeping a very close eye on what was going on with the Bulls. And, you know, he said, well, Luke Longley, you know, pretty good passer. He'll probably fit well in the triangle. And he was probably, you know, going in his head already like, well, when I come back, maybe, maybe this guy could be useful to the team. So it was great to have a chance to talk to MJ, the baseball player, about a trade in the NBA. And, you know, he, as you've had the same experience, he could be so great at times when you would get him one-on-one when there wasn't all the cameras around him. Because at his core, he loves all sports. He loves talking about it. And, and he could be great with the media when you got him in the right situation. And, and you know what, Mark? Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf paid him his full basketball salary when right. he was – in the in the in the uh, in the sticks, if you will, of the minor leagues, something tells me that Jerry Reinsdorf even then knew that he was eventually going to come back. Who knows? We'll never maybe know, but maybe the whole thing was worked out in advance. There's so right. many conspiracy stories that go along with Michael playing baseball, yada yada. But thank God he came back, and I'll, I'll say this until I'm dust somewhere in heaven or hell um, that. He's the greatest athlete I'll ever hope to be around. He gave me so many thrills, and he was he, he was to me, Mark. He was a superstar both on and off the court. Like you said, you know, if you were with him one on one or even just a small group, he could be so much fun to be around. And I, I have a lot of other stories that I'll bring up in future podcasts of my dealings with Michael Jordan. He was one of a kind. Well, as you mentioned, we're taping this on Thursday, and Wednesday was MJ's fifty eighth birthday. It was also my daughter, Brooke's 26th birthday. So shout out to Brooke. Happy birthday, a day late. Um, but, you know, one of the sports talk stations in Chicago, not the one that uh, you were previously working at, actually we're, we're putting this out as a discussion topic on the afternoon show that could MJ still average 10 points in the league at 58? And I'm like, no, no. I mean, you know, not, if you ask him, I'm sure he, he would say said he would, but MJ might be carrying a little bit of extra weight now. He's had a lot of, lot of injuries, a lot of wear and tear. I don't think Michael Jordan could score or average 10 points a game in the NBA right now. I don't know why any billionaire would even want to try it, to be honest with you, right. at any age, much less his. Mark, as always, <laughs> this has been a blast. I'll look forward to next week. The Bulls do have four games between now and the next time we talk. Who knows? We'll see what happens. I mean, again – even when they lose, they're a pretty fun team to watch right now. Zach Levine makes it fun in himself and some of the young players. So, yeah, it's it's fun always talking basketball. It's always fun talking the Bulls and basketball with you, Mark. 
My pleasure, David, and all-star reserves are going to be named next Tuesday. So hopefully the next time we get together, we'll be able to talk about Zach Levine getting ready for his first all-star game appearance. Okay, great. Until then, folks, we'll talk to you soon.